You're listening to All The Best. I'm Helena Barone-Peters. For the next few weeks, we're taking a break. And so we'll be playing you some of our favourite stories from the All The Best archives. We'll be back with new stories in July. Our first story takes us to the shores of Yarra Bay and the origins of one of the first social enterprises established in so-called Australia. Heads up, this story contains discussions of colonial violence and dispossession. Everyone who's either lived in Sydney or spent some time here would have been to the Sydney Fish Markets or at least heard about it. A bit of an institution to go there with your family, have a feed, take in the harbour. And it wasn't until I was older that I found out the connection that my community in La Perouse actually has to that place. I was told that it was originally started when um, fishermen from our community in the late 1800s were fishing in Botany Bay and the surrounding areas. And after fulfilling their culture responsibilities by um, giving fish to their family, both immediate and extended, they would then go and sell this fish with the help of some prominent families um, in the colony, the Hills and the Wentworths, and achieve an economic return. That was Ash Walker. He's a Darul Durga man from the La Perouse Aboriginal community. He's also a board member of the Gujaga Foundation, and I'm the general manager. And I'm Sally Walker. I'm also a Darul person from the La Perouse Aboriginal community. Made me feel two things. Firstly, I felt a bit stupid that I hadn't heard better earlier, but two, was also um, really proud of my ancestors who really proved that they could adapt quite well to the changing environment around them, which was um, being increasingly affected by colonial influence. Ray Ingray is a Dungadi Darawal man from the La Perouse Aboriginal community and he's the chairperson of the Gujaga Foundation. We're currently on at a place that we call Gurawal or, or La Perouse. And this is the site where our Aboriginal community were placed in 1883 by the New South Wales Aboriginal Protection Board. And not too far from here, we've got um, across from the bay, you've got a place that we call Kandal or Kernel. And that's where 250 years ago, Lieutenant James Cook and the crew of the Endeavour landed. And our people at that time were, and our families that belonged to La Perouse were in and around coastal Sydney and Botany Bay. In 1883, the La Perouse community was formed by George Thornton, a former mayor of Sydney. Thornton used the drowning of an Aboriginal boy as an excuse to establish the New South Wales Aborigines Protections Board. They rounded up every Aboriginal person living in places like the Sydney Boatshed, Elizabeth Bay, Rose Bay and numerous camps around Botany Bay. They were forcibly removed to the northern head of Botany Bay, the La Perouse Mission. My grandmother's great-grandparents were living on the northern head with four other families at that time. 
Today, the La Perouse Aboriginal community is the only discrete Aboriginal community in the Greater Sydney area. That means you can physically see the community. We're not just scattered in the suburb, and the families belonging to our community have ancient roots back to this cultural area. Indigenous people here were quick to engage in the economy of the colony. People like Ma Root were running fishing tours. He had a fishing hut down at Botany, didn't he? Yeah. And um, run tours out of there, lease fishing boats, I believe, too. Yeah. And in addition, there are other um, members of our community who used to run fishing and hunting tours to the south and the way they used to drum up business was to spread rumours of cannibals to the south. This was of course made up. Same cultural group runs from Sydney Harbour down to Illawarra and then again down to the Shoal Haven. That's just an example of how our people quickly adapted, made up some aggressive marketing campaigns and engaged quite effectively. Ray says that the La Perouse community had one of the first social enterprises in the colony. So how they turned it into a fishing enterprise was that different species of fish come in at different seasons. So at the moment now, this season is a murrah season or mullet season. And so what they would do is they will catch a haul. And so they were hauling in fish, providing half of their catch to the community to meet their that responsibility and then on selling it to the Hill and Wentworth families who would then on sell it to the what we now know as the Sydney fish markets. And so that was actually generating an income. They were feeding the community but also getting an income as well. So we're on the um, shores of Yarra Bay and on the other side there you've got fresh water stream that come out and it was actually the, the place where Arthur Phillip, leading the first fleet, got their fresh water from when they landed here in, in Gamay or Botany Bay. And it's also the site where our community uh, undertakes cultural fishing in the mullet seasons to provide food source to our community. So you would see in the waters, it's obviously it's a cold time of year, so it's when the temperature drops. But in the actual water itself, you start to see a lot more schools of fish activity. So, and, and at that time, it's the maramara that comes in, or the you know big schools of mullet. And particularly when they're calm days, you'll start to see what we refer to as the water starts to boil. So it looks like that the water's boiling water, but it's actually just a big school of fish and sometimes you'll see them swimming nice but you'll see big shadows um, and big dark patches coming through and depending on the colour and depending on the on the size of the, the shadow in the water is um, the old fellas can determine just how much fish and where they come from so if it's too if it's a small school they'll just let it go so it goes back out to sea and get bigger if it's a big school they'll try and cast it as long as they've got a big enough net. You'll have a person on the headland which they would look out for the to give the heads up that there's a school of fish coming in and they would drop the net and they would row someone in a rowboat would row it around the school of fish so as the fish come in they'll row it around and as it got back to the beach you would have the men would then pull pull the nets in and as they're pulling the nets up into the beach they're dragging obviously the fish up and they're able then to to move the fish. 
but mostly the senior man would be sitting here and he would either direct or tell tell them like if it's a go or not to get fish because sometimes it might be too small and they'd prefer to go out but they'll also be able to determine if it was economically benefit to go and, and haul in that fish and by and they're able to calculate how many the size by just looking at the size of the school underwater on how many boxes they'll fill up and then they'll be able to um, calculate how much they will get per box at the market and they will be able to determine if it's worth it or not to actually drop the net and do the work. And so they would look at it from an economic point of view but they'll also look at it from a cultural point of view and they would determine it was more culturally important to let a school of fish to go back out to sea to get bigger and then next season that will be a bigger school that they'll be able to at least get the majority of and haul in but by that stage they would have bred a lot more. The process of netting a haul is the same today in La Perouse as it was in the 1800s when the social enterprise was thriving for our old people but then the protection board began an investigation into why the community was rejecting rations. So our understanding was that they quick they they made the move to shut down because the protection board couldn't understand why La Perouse kept refusing rations. To strip their independence away, you've got to make them dependent on something. And La Perouse didn't need the rations. Fishing was a, obviously a, a food source, you know, so take away the monetary, the economic side of things. It was a way that we were able to feed ourselves. But that's a lot of cultural practices that were dismantled with the same way. Yeah, you can look at it. It kind of happened pretty steadily um, as a way to dismantle our cultural practices and to to be honest, the structure of our society. First, they restricted our movement. We couldn't go around our cultural area anymore. We had to stay on La Perouse Aboriginal Reserve. Then they started to take away our means to feed ourselves independently, stopped us from speaking language, stopped us from conducting our tra traditional ceremonies. It was to the point where some people in our community were threatened with their kids being taken away if they were caught speaking their native language of Dharawal. So it's pretty heavy government intervention. It was hand in hand with government simulation policies. They were doing their best to make us not be Aboriginal anymore. I think it's a large reason we have so many problems today. As Aboriginal people, we went from being a society or a community which was completely self-reliant to one which was forced onto welfare dependence by the government, and it continued. So I would say that probably my father's and maybe my grandfather's generation were the first ones who kind of had an opportunity to engage in the economy. And you can see that with lack of intergenerational wealth in Aboriginal communities across the country. Compare it with non-Aboriginal families who are considered well off, that wealth is commonly built up over generations. And we had that opportunity taken away from us. Now our community faces different challenges. 
If you just look at Dubai over the last 70 years, it's been overdeveloped. Our, our men in particular were known to work over, say, in the in industrial parts of Alexandria. They would walk from La Perouse over to that way, but they would actually carry their graras or their fishing spears and leave them in the, the bush. And then when they would come home, they would come through and, and spear fish for dinner. That was restricted when obviously the airport and then the port was developed. And as they got bigger and bigger, country changed and we're really now only restricted. We're coastal people, so we live off what comes out of the coast. So a lot of seafood is our, our diet and we love it, but we're very limited on what we can, apart from the overfishing, the pollution in this bay is unbelievable. And we, but we still go out and dive. So we know when the lobster season's on, or yanga we call it, and we'll go out and catch them. We know when the mullet's on and we know all that. And so we still use this bay as a food source. And over time that's impacted us from a spiritual and cultural point of view. And our community's current position, you know, we're opposed to any further development of Botany Bay. So here, even though it's called uh, we call it Gamay. Our old people used to call it Kamei. It's just language evolves over time. The ocean we call Gatu. And our old people refer, and some of us still refer to ourselves as Garungu, which just means people belonging to salt water or the ocean. In English, Aboriginal people will refer to themselves as per the environment they belong to. So saltwater people, freshwater people, mountains people. We saltwater people, but in our language we refer to ourselves as Garungu, which is Gatu is the, is the ocean. That story was produced by Eddie Diamond. The assistant producer was Sally Walker with supervising production from Sarah Mashman. You're listening to All The Best. I'm Helena Baroni-Peters. All The Best, you can learn how to make audio documentaries, essays, and fiction. If you have a story to tell, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com and send us your pitch. We'll pay you with one of our supervising producers to help make your story. In our next story, Selena's dreary time in Sweden changes dramatically when she meets the Nightingale Man. So a scientist wants to know the answer of why birds sing, and this you can read in most biology textbooks. Birds sing to defend territories and attract mates. The male birds are doing the singing and the females are listening to see if they like it and other males are listening to see if you're encroaching on my territory. And that's the generally accepted explanation and it's true. In 2014, I was living and studying in a small town in Sweden. I lived in a tiny single room apartment with a frail single bed. It had been advertised as student accommodation, but it was actually a repurposed hotel room on a sterile grey street. When I moved there, it was deep winter, like Swedish winter. Everything was dark and frozen, and there was not a single bird. For the length of my exchange, I found the Swedish town boring and stuffy, 
and I found it particularly difficult to make friends with Swedes. I felt like I wasn't in my natural habitat. Why does a nightingale need to sing all night, whereas a hermit thrush just needs to sing a few phrases during the day? It's for the same function, doing the same thing, but using very different tools. Why this specific difference? Where does the nature of the difference come from? And that's a question, an aesthetic question, that most biologists don't look deeply into. The uni subjects I was studying had nothing to do with birds or why they sing. But on one afternoon, we were invited to hear a guest lecturer speak on that exact topic. I had no roots in biology or ornithology, but I decided to go along and listen to Professor David Rothenberg from the US, a Harvard graduate and a professor in music and philosophy, but with a special pursuit. What do I think of the term interspecies musician? You know, that's a kind of interesting word because no one knows what it means. And, you know, is that the same as a multicultural musician or an intercultural musician? Or, you know, I like the idea. Like David the plays jazz with animals. Birds, insects, even whales. And the beautiful thing is that according to him, sometimes these animals sing back. His most responsive collaborator is the nightingale. I was totally absorbed by his lecture. He showed videos of notes coming out of his clarinet and birds acknowledging him, heads nodding, beaks chirping, and then releasing their own bird song in return, like in this clip from the BBC. This interspecies jamming session so excited David that he embarked on a quest to commune with as many birds as possible. So I listened to the musical call and response, but I wasn't sure I could hear what David was claiming. That the birds he played with were recognising his music and singing back. He wrapped up the lecture, but before packing up, David mentioned he was going to Berlin that weekend. He was planning a nocturnal mission to chase after nightingales in a particular park where they nest for only three weeks of the year. I was pretty desperate for a change of scenery. So I asked, can I join? It's a Friday night in Berlin and around me drunk people stumble over broken glass stomped into the pavement, chanting and celebrating in big groups. This particular night is May 9th, also known as Victory Day. It's the anniversary of the Soviet Union's victory over Nazi Germany the end of the Second World War. Everyone is awake, and the whole city is one giant, noisy, overwhelming party. I finally spot David. He's brought a few others along, and together we head towards the park, Treptow Park, where the nightingales nest year after year, after migrating from Africa, often back to the very same tree. I really don't know what to expect. On the way, David pauses. He tells us, he can't guarantee anything. When you deal with nature, anything could happen. Maybe the birds won't sing. Maybe they'll be spooked by all these people. Maybe it'll start to rain. Maybe, maybe uh, they'll just be done with singing for the day or for the season. So you never know if, anything's, if it's going to work the way you expect. There always is the opportunity and likelihood of uncertainty and surprise. <laughs> Don't 
Young Russian and German men scuffle around us. They're heading towards Treptow Park as well. There's a famous Soviet monument in there, and the noisy crowds are wandering towards it like pilgrims. It really feels like the worst night to do this. It's cold and wet and unsettled, and there's noise everywhere. Not exactly the magical nightingale jaunt I'd expected. Nevertheless, we march on, disappearing into Treptow Park. Before we go any further, there are some cool and weird things you need to know about nightingales. Just in case, like me before I met David, you thought nightingales were mythical. You know, one scientific paper determined that in the midst of a nightingale song, they make whistles and clicks like boo, 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 so the Megarinkos, the common nightingale, has like up to 200 or 300 separate songs it sings. And Lucinia Lucinia, the thrush nightingale, has maybe 50 or so. And that one sounds more like a DJ scratching records and more, more jarring and percussive. And the other one has many, many more different kinds of songs. And they have so, um, they, they sing so emphatically throughout the night on and on and on and they, they're in the same place every night so this is also kind of unique you can rehearse with a bird you can plan the show and, and be pretty sure that when you go back the night of the show the same bird's going to be there ready for you but it's more than their song range and ability that attracts David to them it's also their attitude because when it comes to the nightingale song David believes there's more to it than just territorial protection and female attraction he thinks the nightingale's relationship to music is more complex and maybe more human. They make the sound like the sound, this kind of bluesy, uneven note. My friend Korhan calls it the booty sound. It's the sound that's, that's the sexiest sound. Scientists have determined females really get excited when they hear this. But it's not done that often. And one scientist said, well, what? Why doesn't the male nightingale just sing the, the booty sound over and over again? Like, you know, duh. It's like a guitarist isn't going to use his wah-wah pedal constantly, unless it's Frank Zappa. But otherwise, you, you, you just do the cool licks once in a while. That gives them their power. And I think the nightingale in his song knows that and uses it a certain per- percentage of the time, just at certain moments. And that's very important to the effectiveness of that sound. But that's just a musical hunch. In silence, we start to make our way through the park. I'm a bit nervous. I'm wondering how I ended up here and how far into the dark park we would be going. If you're not familiar with Treptow Park, it's huge. To borrow an overused analogy, it's about the size of 110 football fields, even though it's plonked in the middle of Germany's biggest city. We walk for a very, very long time, winding through trees, past ponds full of frogs, And soon the sounds of parties and street celebrations fade into the distance. We're all a bit unsure how to behave, whether we can talk, how slow or how fast we should be walking, and what we'll do if we don't find any nightingales. David has finally stopped under a specific tree, 
and we gather around him. It's almost pitch black where we're standing. At this point, it has started to properly rain, and I'm thinking that the loud Victory Day celebrations and the weather could leave us with no bird song. And I'm already reeling at the awkwardness of standing in the dark with eight strangers, possibly all having ended up here as I did, completely randomly, and now having to sit through the next half hour in the rain, growing more and more embarrassed for David. Because there's some contention around what David is doing, exactly. And many biologists have doubts. Like, how can he know the birds are responding? How can he know the birds care or compute what he's doing? Well, the answer is he doesn't. I'm interested in figuring out what the best nightingale song would be. And some people would talk about, like, you know, in biology books you read, oh, the bird with the longest song, the most complex song, or the loudest song has the most success at mating, and that's why it evolves through selective pressure, competition against each other for the attention of these females. And in fact, that's only been proven in a very small number of bird species. And in most bird species, like nightingales, there isn't any evidence that the more complex, more varied song leads to any more mating success. The differences are there, but we don't really know what makes the best nightingale song, if there is such a thing. This is why David has spent so much of his life wondering if birds might be closer to humans than we think. Maybe they sing for beauty, for enjoyment, for pleasure, like us. In the forest, David plays a few notes, and we silently wait. later I went to visit David in Cold Spring. It's the town in upstate New York where he lives. Together we reminisced about that night in Berlin. It was the first of many nights that David spent in Treptow Park that year. He'd found the bird he connected with the most, his best avian collaborator. This bird was the one, but good things never last. The next year we're all set it's midnight. We're going to have a whole concert there. It's like 50 people. Laying, and scientists show up. They're ready to record the same bird. Oh, look, you have this whole audience. Oh, we, you know, we, we, we're interested in this bird. This is one of the best ones. Like, I know he's a good one. And, and I said, it's okay. We'll, we'll move. You know, we'll let you know. No, no, you got all these people here. You should stay. Well, wait a minute. Have you been playing with this bird already? Uh, yes, we have. You know, you know. Also, we were sampling the bird. What? You were sampling his own songs, playing it back? That's what really bothered them. It, it was like glimmers of a scientific experiment. And then this great nightingale scientist, Silke Kipper, said, this bird is ruined for us. This animal is ruined for us. You've tainted him with your non-scientific musical interactions. And, you know, uh, I was very apologetic. And I said, we're going to stay out of Trep Tower Park from now on for this reason, because this is the one place you're studying it. But the other sense, I had to kind of laugh a bit because this this is a noisy park full of midnight parties and people singing and dancing. Like the entire area is tainted by uh, people. Like these birds hang out with people. This is nothing like oh, the wilderness. And interesting, they picked this area. 
Now, since that year, they have renovated this place where the frogs were. I think the pond is gone. This year it was all under construction, so we didn't go back there. So I'm not sure the same great bird has come back. It's been a couple of years, and David is still making music with nightingales. In fact, he's working on a documentary about his work and his pursuit of the best nightingale song, if there is such a thing. I hope his work continues, because he taught me that your natural habitat isn't always where you're from, or where you feel most comfortable, but simply where you land and decide to build a nest. That story was produced by Selena Shannon, with supervising production from Zasha Rosen and Beck Fari. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to elders past, present and future. All the best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonarung lands and 8CCC on Arunda and Warramungu lands. Our editorial manager is Mel Chun, and our production manager is Danny Stewart. Matilda Fay and Emma Fan are our social media producers, and our community and events coordinator is Lydia Yosefova. Shining Bird composed our theme music, and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and we're made possible by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at cbf.org.au. You can find more episodes by searching for All the Best wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Helena Baroni-Peters. Thanks for listening.